Amen. Singing of our great hope and our King. The children can be dismissed to Children's Church for those families that would like to participate in that. And while they're doing so, please open up your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 13. As we carry on in our exposition of this glorious gospel. Well, I think it's safe to say that often today, as people might come to the subject of Jesus and salvation or life after death, very often it's speculative, it's it's surfacy, it's most often not personal. And of course, others, when they speak about Jesus, they blaspheme his name. They scoff at the notion of salvation or judgment. But I think for so many people, they just dismiss Jesus. You know, they perhaps will recognize that Jesus was a historical figure. Yes, he lived. It appears that he was a good moral man, a good teacher. But ultimately, he's just unimportant. He doesn't matter. But what we're confronted with here in Luke, in the Gospels, is that Jesus, in his real ministry, as he traveled along the way, from his baptism in the Jordan all the way to the cross, was a lightning rod. He had a radical message. He declared that he came to cast fire upon the earth. His message was provocative, and it absolutely enraged the Pharisees. And the closer that Jesus got to the cross, more and more, many of his followers fell away and abandoned him. But you see, Jesus didn't stop shaking people up with the truth, and we need to be shaken up with the truth. For our good and for God's glory, we need to deal honestly with his message as his people even today. So that's the context for our text, Luke 13, verses 22 to 30. Jesus has been teaching in the synagogues. He's been teaching in their streets. He's been preaching the kingdom of heaven. And he's just given this little parable about the leaven that works its way through the dough. He's been rejected by the Pharisees. And he's been told that Herod wants to kill him. But it doesn't deter him. He presses on. He has his face set towards the goal of the cross. Because he loves people and he ministers to people. So he's on the way. He's on mission. He's on message. And he's in ministry as he walks and as he talks. And he's confronted with his little question. So hear God's word. Luke 13, 22 to 30. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, 
I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. The word of the Lord for you and me. May he write it upon our hearts for all eternity. Well, we come to our very first thought this morning. We behold the setting, and Jesus is confronted with a speculative question. That's what we see in verse 23, this short little question that deals with the scope of salvation. It comes, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Of course, this is a theological question that's been debated throughout history, but even more so from the perspective of the Jewish elite. As they asked this question, as they considered this question, because there was the notion that heaven was largely a Jewish reality. And of course, that's not what the Bible teaches, but tradition had eclipsed the Word of God. And so Jesus has just declared, as I said, this message of the kingdom, this parable, the, the picture of the leaven working its way through the dough. It's mysterious. It's unstoppable. It grows. The kingdom grows and expands. It's larger and larger. And so the question comes, Jesus, what are you talking about? Don't we know that the kingdom is rather narrow? It's not big. And the more that Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God, the more his message was questioned and then disputed and rejected with hostility. And so that's the way this question comes. Come on, teacher. Only a few good men and women get in, right? Only Israel, right? But Jesus responds... And he wants to turn this around so that the man has to deal with the truth and the reality. He wants him to see that this isn't about some speculative question, but this is about you dealing with me. He makes it personal. And that's what we see here. Jesus really loves this man. Because he wants him to understand the mountain of sin that stands between him and heaven. Between him and the Lord. And so he gives a solemn command. That's what we see in verse 24. Jesus gives a solemn command. This is a command. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. I'm sure this man had one of those, you know, oh, moments of, wait a minute. I didn't even ask that question. We were just having a nice little theological discussion, you know, theoretical and you had to go and make it personal, Jesus. Why did you bring me into the middle of this? Well, in love, Jesus gets to the real question. All along the way, Jesus has been teaching about salvation. And his message confronted the national arrogance of Israel. That erroneous idea that, of course, all Israel would be saved. You know, they are the chosen people. They do have the covenants. They do have the promise. They do have Messiah coming forth from their own nation. And above all, they have the temple. 
Jesus is headed to Jerusalem where the temple is, that place where God meets with his people. But you see, in this act of love, Jesus puts the verbal judo on him. And he hits the real issue. And all of those within his hearing, and we need to deal with this too, he says, no, 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 no. You need to deal with me. Forget the speculation. You all must strive and fight and struggle to enter the narrow door. So what's Jesus saying here with this command? Is he telling us that salvation is about works? That we in and of ourselves must labor to produce what is necessary to stand before the God of heaven and earth? Well, we know that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And we know that without a perfect and pure law-keeping of our head, our thoughts, our hearts, our feelings, our emotions, our actions, our words, without doing all things right and perfectly, there is no salvation. Holiness matters. But no, Jesus isn't telling us that we can labor individually and specifically on our own behalf to bring about our own salvation. That's not what he's doing here. I mean, we are lost in Adam. Dead and cut off from the very fall of Adam into sin. The entire human race had the doorway shut for the covenant of works. We can't labor in and of ourselves to get right with God. Jesus is not preaching a work salvation. But he is preaching something very specific. He's commanding that they strive to enter the narrow way, the narrow door. And that is him. He's the door. He's the way. And we need to see the glories of this this morning for our own life, for our own salvation. The Greek word used here for to strive is our word agonize. To agonize. It's used for battle. It's used for conquest. It's used for athletic competition. You know, you run the race with with agony. You pour yourself out. You struggle, you strive, you work for the the victory, for the result. And Jesus is calling us to struggle and to strive in the way of faith and repentance. To struggle and to strive as we hold fast to Christ, as we grip him by faith. We've already read the reality of this in our call to confession, Romans chapter 12. In light of the mercies of God in Christ Jesus, the gospel... The gift of salvation. In light of that, offer up your lives as a living sacrifice to the Lord, which is worship in motion. We don't earn grace. It's a free gift. We receive grace. And as we receive grace and we're filled up by the power of grace, the power of salvation, we begin to run the arduous race of pressing in deeper and deeper. Through a life of faith and repentance, what we call sanctification. You know, Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We don't work our own salvation. We don't make it happen, but we work out of it and out of the power of salvation, out of the power of the gospel. I ask all of us believers here today, isn't the the battle and the journey of sanctification the hardest thing that you do in your life, isn't it? 
That day by day you're trying to put off the old, to put off the sin, to turn away from temptation and the things of the world and to walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Isn't that the hardest thing that you do? Are you in the fight? Are you in the struggle? If there's no fight, if there's no struggle, if this is not what you're about, then you're not in the Lord. And Jesus is telling us to struggle, to strive, to press in, to enter through him, through the narrow door. So how do we do that? How is it that we press in, receiving the gift and running in the way of sanctification, striving in this life? Well, we need to know the truth about Jesus. And the truth will set you free. We need to know the truth about who Jesus is, that he's the Son of God, that he's the gift of the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish. He is the God-man. And we also need to know what Christ has done. Indeed, he has lived the perfect life of holy righteousness. He is the law in flesh lived out before the watching world. So that he can go forth to the cross and bear our shame and our sin and our punishment as God's atoning sacrifice. We who were estranged from the Father can be brought back together in a relationship through Christ, his work, his glory. That we're washed of our sins and we're given forgiveness and we're given the gift of righteousness that covers us, the work of Christ. We need to know these things and part of that is we need to know the glorious resurrection of Christ. He was no mere man, but he was the Son of God, and as such, death could not hold him. The grave could not contain him, but he burst forth by the power of God on the third day, triumphing over death and sin and hell and Satan. And you see, when you know that power, the gift of salvation, the gift of God's grace, then you can take heaven by storm. And that's the subject of the great, famous Puritan Tom, Thomas Watson's book, Heaven Taken by Storm. He writes this back in 1665 for believers to focus on the pursuit of a godly life. That having the gift of salvation and the glory of Christ, that we live out of that, we have new affections and new desires, explosive desires in our lives, passions for the Lord, a fervent devotion to run in the way of spiritual discipline in the midst of a challenging, God-hating world to press in, to enter the narrow door, to come into Jesus deeper and deeper, to live for him, to love him. So Jesus says, strive, agonize to keep on keeping on as you enter in deeper and deeper into this thing called the life with Christ and faith and repentance. Well, is this something that we do one time and that's it and it's over? We hear the call, we walk the aisle, we raise the hand, we sign the card. No. Paul says, as you receive Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Keep striving. Keep believing, keep trusting, keep pressing in deeper and deeper. We must never leave the feet of Jesus. And it's work. 
You know, little wee Zacchaeus, that wee little man, what did he do to get a better view of Jesus? He had to climb that tree. It's probably pretty hard for him to get to that first limb, huh? And scramble up. But then when he's there, what does he see? There's Jesus. He's coming. I see him. Jesus came to him and said, you have work to do with me. Come down. A relationship. Well, brothers and sisters, we climb the tree, as it were, through the means of grace to get a better view of Jesus. We don't leave his word. We don't leave prayer. We keep struggling in the devoted life. And that means to strive and to anguish in the struggle of sanctification. Again, Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because Jesus tells us what we need to hear to shake us up. He says, I tell you, many will seek to enter and will not be able. We need to be confronted with this truth continually. There's only one message of truth. There's only one way of salvation. We all, in and of ourselves, deserve condemnation and damnation. And I know this is offensive It offends all of us, but we stand before the holy God of the universe, bankrupt in and of ourselves. So Jesus comes, and he makes it personal, and it doesn't matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, male or female, you need the Lord of grace and mercy in what he does for you. He says, I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. This is the command of the Lord. Come to him. He is the way. So do you come to Jesus? Do you come to him through faith and repentance? Are you seeking the Lord of glory? Well, every human is on some path. Every human being is on some path, on some road, seeking to pass through some door that they think will give them peace and satisfaction and joy. But the only one that is the right door and the right path And the way of life is Christ. And in the mystery of God's saving grace and his electing will, we're in the grips of that, and yet we are responsible for our lives and our actions. We must choose. So pray to the Lord to give you a heart for him and eyes to see him. Because Jesus gives a severe warning for delay. And that's what we see next. Jesus follows the solemn command with a most severe warning. Verses 25 to 27. The warning of rejection, the consequence of delay, he's warning that the door of salvation will close one day. So here's the picture. It's late at night. You're in distress. You're in great need. It's dark and you run to a house and the the door is shut. It's locked. So you begin to bang, you cry out, let me in, let me in. And what's the response? I don't know where you've come from. I don't know your people. And then there's the argument that takes place. Wait a minute, we know you, we ate with you, we drank with you, we heard your teaching in our hometown. Come on, let us in. And the horrible words fall, depart from me, you workers of wickedness. I do not know you. What a severe warning here. So here's the rub. Here is the hard truth that should cause us to pause and reflect and and shake us up. You know, we may know things about Jesus, but if we don't know Jesus, we're lost. 
We have to know the Lord Jesus with the head and the heart by the Spirit indwelling us. You see, Jesus knows each and every human being perfectly. And if we don't know him by way of his Spirit indwelling us, well then, he doesn't know us savingly. In the picture that we have here, we, we know him and we love him and we rejoice in him if he's filling us and, and empowering us and we know that we've been given to him as a gift from the Father. But if that's not us, then he's not going to carry us all the way home. That's the picture. Jesus is declaring, if the Father has not given me to you and you're not in me, then I don't know you and I don't bear you to the cross. I don't know you and I don't bear you in my life, representing you before the Holy Father. You see, if Christ doesn't know you that way of enthroning your heart with his spirit through the gift of new birth that expresses itself in responding to the call of the gospel. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Then, then you will show yourself to be one who is an evildoer, a worker of iniquity. He says, depart from me, you workers of wickedness. This shows the, the disposition of the heart that's given over to sin and to self. Jesus is saying, look, I know that, that if you are of me and you love me, I am the vine and you are the branches, and you will show forth fruit from that. Throughout the trajectory of your life, as you grow, as you know, you will show forth the fruit of faith, seeking to live for the Lord. Struggling in the way of sanctification. But when a heart is hard and faithless, set upon sin and self, well, such a life shows a pattern of bad fruit, of rottenness. And this should really put us on edge because here is the Christ in the midst of his own kindred. Those that he came to, his very own, and he preached in their streets. He was in their synagogues. He was right there in the midst of them. And they chose tradition and race and religiosity over the Savior and the King. Well, what about us? What's our claim to Christ? Do we know things about him without truly knowing him? Do, do we know him personally? Do we hear with new ears and see with spiritual eyes? Well, we must. Because if we don't see and hear and respond, there will come a time when it's too late. And that's what he's saying. You might declare, but Jesus, I've, I've ministered in your name. I've done VBS. I'm baptized. I come to the Lord's Supper. I've gone on a short-term mission trip. But if you don't know him, if you've not been savingly known by Jesus, heed the warning. The door closes. Well, that brings us to our final thought as we come to the table. And really, this is a, a surprising promise that comes here at the end of this, this command and this warning. It's followed up with the promise. Jesus points to the picture of the end of the age. 
There will be those who are outside of Christ who have rejected God's gift of salvation. They will manifest their wickedness all the more as they are watching from afar the glories of the feast of the Lamb. They'll see over there is the reality of grace poured out. The Lamb with His people enjoying the feast, enjoying the glories of grace and communion and union with the Lord. And, and they'll see that. And they'll hate grace all the more. And they'll despise the Lord and his people and his kingdom all the more. Because those whom Jesus came to first, thinking that they have first place in the kingdom without receiving the king, will be last. Their self-righteous justification will end up being expressed in more rebellion, more hatred, more denial of the Christ and his king. But how surprising. What a promise. Who's there with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth at the feast? Well, there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the patriarchs. But there's also Myriads and myriads of people from east to west and north to south. Those who are the true sons and daughters of Abraham by way of the gift of the Spirit and faith. How beautiful. If you have the Spirit of Christ in you, then you are a son or a daughter of Abraham, spiritually speaking. And it's manifested in faith and repentance and confession and worship and hope. And these people, they're in heaven not because they're Jewish or circumcised, but because of Christ alone, delighting and rejoicing in the Lord. And think about it. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they never laid their eyes physically upon the physical Savior who did come. But with eyes of faith, they saw him and they believed. And they rejoiced and they we're trusting in him. And isn't it interesting? We've not seen Jesus in the flesh. And yet with the gift of faith, we see with the eye. What we just sang before, the message, the hope, the glory. Christ is coming. He will return. We see with eyes of joy and faith. So, brothers and sisters, friends, we have the whole Christ before us in the reading and the preaching of the gospel. And he wants to shake us up. He wants us to shake off our lethargy and to deal with the reality of what really matters in life and in death. And that's a relationship with him, to come to him, to receive him, to know the joys of salvation. You see, the Lord Almighty does not desire that men stay in their sin and hate him and go on to death and destruction. No, he has a heart of love. He wants all men and women to repent and to turn to him and to receive eternal life. And what Jesus declares, even in this warning and yet with this wonderful promise, is a sincere offer, a sincere calling, a sincere invitation. The promised one calls us. Receive him. Rest in him as he's offered to you in the gospel and rejoice. Because... He's the one that stands before us, and he will stand before all people on the day of days, the last day. 
We need him now. And his justice will be magnified all the more. Because no human being, no son or daughter of Adam and Eve deserves heaven. We all deserve judgment, but he holds out life to us. And that's what this supper preaches. That's what the broken bread and the poured out wine show us. The glory of Christ for us, the hope of heaven. That's what we have, the gift of Christ. So hallelujah, the door is open to you today. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed the next hour. But right now, it's open. Take Christ. Receive the Lord. It doesn't matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done. It's a free offer of God's grace in Christ. Come and and hear his word and rejoice in him and know the sweetness of the Savior. That's what he's calling us all to enjoy this day. So let's pray. Let's pray for more humility. Let's pray for a specific kind of humility, a humble trusting in God and the gift of Christ, this promise. Let's, let's pray for stronger faith. Let's pray for an active faith that seeks to take heaven by storm that we would enjoy each and every moment of every day in communion with the Lord. To seek to live our lives in ways that please Him. To turn away from those things that so easily entangle us in sin. We need to be shaken. Christ is better and more beautiful and more wonderful than any sin, any idol. Turn away from them. Turn to Him. Enjoy the the communion that you have with Him each and every day. Have an active faith. Must pray all the more. That the love of the Lord would fill up our hearts so that when we hear his word and his calling to obey, we do so with joy. Quickly, we respond with joyful obedience. And finally, let's pray for perseverance in this world. Let's pray for, for God's preserving grace that holds us fast because the days are evil. We do live in a broken, upside-down, fallen, hostile world, and yet the Lord has made us more than conquerors in Christ. So let's pray that we be filled up with preserving grace. And as we come to the supper, this is a wonderful time to lay our hearts before the Lord and to cry out for these wonderful blessings that He gives to us because He is showing us that He's for us. And He knows that our faith is weak. And so he's given us this physical, tangible sign and seal of the covenant of grace so that we see and touch and taste in the bread broken. And we see and touch and taste in the the fruit of the vine poured out, the reality that Christ has been poured out for us. That we would know life in him. He wants us to be vibrant for him. So as we come to the supper, we need to be reminded that this is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the table of carriage lane. It is for any believing, Christian, loving Christ, resting in Him alone for salvation and good standing of any evangelical church. Come to the supper. Come to the feast. Receive, rejoice, rest. It's not for unbelievers, though. So it comes with warnings. If you eat and drink the supper without faith, without love, without hope of Christ in your heart, then then you eat and drink judgment. This is serious. 
So if you're not a believer, don't eat, don't drink, but consider your need. The door of salvation is open to you. Consider Christ. Take hold of him. Let the elements pass you by. Cry out for faith. Jesus never turned anybody away who sought him with faith and repentance. And for the young ones who are members by way of family and not yet confession, consider you have unfinished business with Jesus. He's calling you to the supper. He's calling you to himself. Make your faith personal. If you're ready to make your confession, talk to your pastors, talk to your elders, talk to your parents. We'd love to hear it. But let's rejoice. Let's eat and drink. Let's worship in our hearts. Let's be filled up all the more. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Almighty, we thank you so much for the great salvation that we have in Christ that is so beautifully pictured for us even now as these common elements of bread and the fruit of the vine are set apart as holy things adorning your word of promise. Lord, this is how much you love us. That you've gone all the way to hell to snatch us from hell. That you are our great righteousness and our hope and our peace. So Lord, we pray as the bread is broken and as we eat and drink that you would be well pleased to seal ever deeper to our hearts powerful, active, struggling, striving, living faith in you to the praise of your glorious grace, O oh Lord. We thank you for these great gifts that you give us. Commune with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.